On our plate today, we dish about school lunch boxes, federal school lunch programs and food insecurity, and our best and worst school lunch memories. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. So some of the time I remember packing a school lunch, but some of the time I do remember eating out of my school cafeteria. But I'm actually a little bit hard-pressed to remember any of those meals very specifically. Oh. Do you have? Oh, my God. Yes, I do. I remember having the lunch boxes, but mostly what I remember is school hot lunch. The one meal that I remember the most was tuna noodle casserole, which I absolutely hate. We would eat our lunch, and then you'd have to go to the disposal station. And Mrs. Buttemeyer manned or womaned. <laughs> The disposal station. If I would go up to the disposal station and there was still too much food on my plate, she would send me back to the table to finish what was on my plate. (laughs) I hated that. For one thing, we were not able to serve ourselves, right? So you have an adult Mm -hmm. who is serving you a portion that they feel is appropriate for you. And most times it's not appropriate for a child. So I didn't have a choice of what was put on my plate. I didn't have a choice of the amount that was put on my plate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a choice because what was served that day is what was served. And then Mm -hmm. Mrs. Buttemeyer would send me back to the table to finish whatever it was that I didn't like. (laughs) And you've already, because you've already decided that you've come to a point when you are satiated that you don't want to eat any further. And it's not as though you're now inspired other than you've got this threat of I can't leave until I finish this portion that's been granted to me. Exactly. And then there were days that we had the opportunity to purchase a second (laughs) milk. And if you were able to purchase the second milk as a chocolate milk, that was so Mm -hmm. special. Wow. So you are bringing back memories for me. In my first elementary school, we had, this was in Santa Monica, California at Franklin Elementary School. And I don't know if it's still like this, but we had an all-purpose room that was an indoor gym, an auditorium. And the lunchroom. And we would walk through the kitchen and they would dish something out for us. I remember both bringing my lunch and buying a school lunch at that school. I think there was a point when my mom was making me school lunches and she was pretty health conscious. So that might constitute meat, tomato, hard boiled egg, piece of fruit. There were certain times when I would bring money to buy a school lunch and they'd send home the mimeograph sheets for the month, what the meals were supposed to be. Spaghetti was always one of my favorites. And I do remember occasionally they would offer seconds. And as a Husky kid, I was totally into those seconds, particularly for the spaghetti, (laughs) but also for fried chicken, which was not something that I got at home very often. My mom just didn't make fried chicken. We didn't get it from KFC. It just was not really a a food item in our house. So for me, that was a huge treat at the elementary school to be able to get that.
And then at my second elementary school, which I went to for sixth grade, I don't remember us ever having a hot meal, but I do remember sitting with a group of girls and one of them was the eldest of three. And her mom basically made this exact same lunch for every kid in the family, no matter what. And it was a bologna on white bread with a little bit of mayo and a little bit of mustard. And to me, that was actually really exotic. Bologna just wasn't a thing in my house. And so to me, this bologna sandwich was so exotic. And I would trade with her. I don't think I had anything that she wanted, but she was so sick of the bologna sandwiches by the sixth grade that I would mooch her bologna sandwich from her. I asked quite a few people about their favorite lunchtime experiences, and I was lucky to actually talk to my dad earlier about this. He grew up in South Africa, in Cape Town, South Africa. He recalls that his school rectory provided a variety of dishes for the students. Now, these are very non-American dishes, so mince pies and sausage rolls and, and things like that. His family was poor and couldn't afford for him to basically buy lunch on a daily basis. And this was a public school, though he worked in the kitchen in trade. Or not in the kitchen, but he worked for the kitchen in trade for a meal. Because he was good at math, he was a cashier, and he got his choice of whatever he wanted for doing so, which is not something I knew that he had done. So it was actually fun to talk to him and learn that. And my mom told me a story which I had forgotten. She was in a Catholic boarding school in South Africa, and she was anemic. And she was given a special plate of spinach at her mealtimes to help build up the iron in her blood. And she said she loved it. It was the best thing. Only she got that plate of spinach, freshly cooked spinach. That's so interesting. I did some research and my research centered around rural America because I grew up in a rural area. I went back to like 1916 and this is before school lunches were funded by the federal government. So there were two publications that I bounced back and forth on and they were both written by home economists. They were talking about the anemia and this one publication oh. called The School Lunch and it was written by this home economist in Massachusetts. One of the things that they realized that once they started putting these school lunch programs in place in rural areas is that the afternoon discipline became easier because these kids had enjoyed this nutritious meal. And she said, one girl in the third grade was especially anemic and was in the habit of falling asleep every afternoon. She became a regular patron of the canteen. And after two weeks, after two weeks, she ceased to fall asleep. She was thought to be mentally deficient until the oh advent goodness. of the canteen when she began to receive 100% on some of her work. I think that these women realized how important this lunchtime meal was to students. And one pamphlet that I read that was called The Rural School Lunch starts out by saying that these kids' lunches were packed in pails. And by the time they got to school, and this was in the Midwest, North Dakota, so winters were frigid. By the time yeah. they got to school, their lunch was frozen. And oh. she commented that in this state, it wasn't very appetizing. And then once it thought, it was even less appetizing. The contents weren't very thought out. They were hastily put in whatever was left over, mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. cold pancakes. 
And I remember both of my parents actually talking about having pancakes in their lunches. My mother specifically would have pancakes in her lunchbox that her mother had put butter and sugar and cinnamon on and rolled up. And that was what she had for lunch, which I thought, wow, that's really, I don't know that that's a lunch. Not by today's standards. <laughs> so what these women were seeing is these kids were coming into school with these frozen lunches. And some of these kids walked between one and six miles to get to school. So they wow, may not yeah. have even had breakfast at that point. So it was very important for them that there was a warm lunch that was provided to them. And in the Midwest specifically, the biggest meal of the day was lunch on the farm. You may have had a small breakfast. You went out in the field and you worked until lunchtime. It was literally like making Thanksgiving every single day. Lunch was always a huge meal on the farm and then dinner was smaller. So when these kids started going to school in rural America specifically, again, their breakfasts were minimal, if any, and they got to school and their lunches were frozen. And by the time they got home, they didn't have a lot either. So it was very important for these women to create this program that had these warm lunches at school for kids. Mm -hmm. Both of these publications talked about why it was so important that these kids had really good nutrition at the lunchtime mm -hmm. meal. And then they went into what was the necessary equipment. This is from the rural school lunch pamphlet, necessary equipment. Two burner blue flame oil stove, which at this time was 325, a portable oven, mm -hmm. also 325, a frying pan, which was 10 cents, granite kettles, which were 80 cents, a sieve, which was 10 cents, aluminum tablespoons, which were 10 cents, aluminum teaspoons, which were 10 cents, a steel knife, which was 10 cents, asbestos mats, which were 10 cents, mm. a granite basin, which was 10 cents. A Dover egg beater, which was 25 cents. A dish pan, which was 50 cents. A draining pan, which was 30 cents. And a two-quart double boiler, which was $1.75, which was a total of $11.50. So for wow. $11.50, you could put an yeah. entire school lunch kitchen together. And then they both went on to talk about how you could get the supplies. And this really relied on the people that attended the school. They expected the mothers specifically to send mm -hmm. ingredients to the school. They had a whole list of ways that you could get the equipment. And one of them was they had a shower. So like a baby shower or a wedding shower. <laughs> and they would invite these women. One of the things that it said, you can get all of this at your hardware store. So you would go to uh -huh. the hardware store and pick up one of these things to come to this shower. And then it talked about having the kids bring the ingredients to school so that they could make these. And one of the things that I absolutely loved, especially about the rural school lunch pamphlet, was that you had housekeepers that were assigned on a weekly basis. And the housekeepers were boys and girls, which I mm -hmm. thought was so amazing for this woman to include in this pamphlet. And she made it a point like yeah. three or four times to say that it's important for the boys and the girls to both be involved in this school lunch. So you would have a housekeeper that would cook the meal. You would have a housekeeper that cleaned up. You would have a housekeeper that took the garbage out. 
and you would have a housekeeper Mm -hmm. that set the tables. And the other thing that was really amazing to me is that both of these women said that the benefits of having school lunch table manners improved. Mm -hmm. It created a forum for conversations between the students and the teachers. So you could talk about current Mm -hmm. events and helpful conversation could be encouraged. And the nutritional education became a part of the school day, which I thought was such an amazing concept. And I really wish that still was part of school lunch today. Mm -hmm. Me too. Me too. But I really loved the fact that it, it talked about the creation of a forum for the conversation between the students and the teachers. And the other thing that I thought was amazing was that you were creating this community that worked together to help benefit each other. And just that discovery too, that nutrition, proper nutrition really was making a difference in these kids' lives. I'm thinking about that student who, you know, anemic and falling asleep. The idea that she was considered to be mentally deficient. Right. But then once she was eating properly, she was getting great scores on her work. Yeah. Just this notion of providing proper nutrition for kids came up in my research, too. So I really looked into the federal school lunch program. This is great because this actually really ties into it with what you learned. I got real curious about this notion of school lunch because it was something that just was a part of my K through 12 education, the idea that there was a cafeteria available to students that we could go in and buy lunch. Later on, there was a la carte options. And also in high school, at my high school, we had a Taco Bell cart that was available on campus as well. I know that other countries have other takes on school lunches. If anyone has a perspective on what school lunch was like for you outside the United States, we'd love to hear from you. My research today is really limited to the U.S., but I did discover that the first general school lunch program was actually developed in Munich, Germany in 1790 by an American-born physicist, Count Rumford, a.k.a. Benjamin Thompson. He was an American royalist who basically immigrated back to Europe during the Revolutionary War because he... You know, he just couldn't deal with U.S. not being part of Great Britain anymore. So in Munich, he founded the Poor People's Institute. And and through that group, adults and children were given food and clothes in exchange for work. And the children learned reading, writing, and arithmetic. He's been credited with pioneering institutional food. So the idea of feeding a lot of people, probably fairly inexpensively. (laughs) Credited with introducing the potato as an inexpensive, nutritious source of food for the poor and for inventing the double boiler, the kitchen range, the baking oven, the pressure cooker, and the drip coffee maker. Everything you would need to feed people institutionally. So it was really interesting hearing from you about the things that needed to go into a kitchen. I, I remember hearing the double boiler was definitely one of them. The concept in the U.S. that there was social inequality and that there were poor children that needed to be fed really came up during the first Industrial Revolution, 1760 to 1830. There were a lot of inconsistencies in education, nutrition, and overall health between poor children and wealthy children. At that time, charitable organizations in Philadelphia, Boston, and New York were the first to serve subsidized hot meals to kids. A kid that was eating properly was more productive, more mentally alert, was healthier. And of course, they were needed (laughs) in the factories. But it was also during the Great Depression in the U.S. in the 20s and 30s that farmers weren't doing well. And the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA, created a temporary New Deal project with three goals. One was to employ people. Two was to reduce a crop surplus. 
and three was to feed hungry kids. And that program lasted from 1930 to 1942. It was a temporary program. Mm-hmm. It was basically interrupted by World War II. Right. But it was in June 4, 1946, that the National School Lunch Act was signed into law by, by President Harry S. Truman. And this created the National School Lunch Program that we still have today. The goal still here was simple, use surplus food and raise prices paid to farmers and feed hungry kids. Today, that program now includes breakfast, snacks, summer food, and like a kid and adult care food program. And it's the second largest food-related program in the U.S. behind what we think of as food stamps. Wow. Although it was originally devised as a way to bring farm goods to hungry people, especially hungry kids in, in all parts of the country, food was homemade, served fresh. By the end of the 70s, competitive fast food from private companies' vending machines was on campus. Cafeterias were offering a la carte menus that really didn't have much nutritional value, but were fun, meant to be an add-on to a nutritious lunch. And kids started eating those things rather than a complete meal set. And then (laughs) in the early 80s, the federal government had large cuts to all kinds of federal programs. And the National School Lunch Program saw big subsidy cuts that led to the infamous ketchup as a vegetable controversy. And this I actually have always remembered as, oh, the government thinks that ketchup counts as a vegetable. But there's a little bit more to it than that. So if I'm understanding it correctly, and I might not be, and if somebody has another perspective on this, I'd love to hear it. But the regulations that were being enacted was meant to give plan administrators flexibility to do more with less. So certain food items were allowed to count as having nutritional value, although their intent was not initially to be of nutritional value. It was actually pickle relish rather than ketchup that was allowed to receive credit as a vegetable. So if if you included pickle relish on a burger or a hot dog for somebody who is trying to crunch numbers and get credit for meeting nutritional guidelines, that was a way of getting that Mm. score. I don't fully understand where ketchup as a vegetable kind of came into play. Somebody noted condiments were allowed to count as vegetables and the opposing side went with that because it was sensational. There is a requirement for school lunches now relevant to that, where pizza sauce has to include two tablespoons of tomato paste in order for that to be considered meeting nutritional guidelines. So there's some give and take in this whole thing. And and as I've said, it's a little bit of a confusing prospect. And we still keep refining it. In 2010, which is pretty recent, we had the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act And that actually put the most sweeping changes in the history of the National School Lunch Program into effect, namely was regulation of vending machine snacks and a la carte menu items now being under federal regulation for the very first time. There are new guidelines requiring more fruit, vegetables, whole grains in school meals, and limiting sodium, fat, and caloric intake based on student ages. So what you get in high school is different from what you get in middle school, it's different from what you get in primary school. It's interesting to think about the developmental needs of each of those categories. And a big focus too of that act, the 2010 act, is has also been fighting childhood obesity. It's been less about nutrition and more about obesity now. Because we have seen obesity increase, of course, nationwide, globally as well, but definitely in the United States. And it's predicated on this belief that obesity comes from a lot of different vectors. And one of them is the availability of fresh, wholesome food at an early age. 
So you do see schools that are increasingly having vegetable plots, and it's considered both biological education as well as providing some things to the kitchen. Historically, the National School Lunch Program and other food programs have been used to improve the health of children who are food insecure or at risk of malnutrition. Between 2007 and 2008, so basically our last Great Recession. The food insecurity rate in the U.S. increased from 1.1% to 14.6%, the largest annual increase since researchers began tracking the rate in the mid-1990s. Wow. Among households with children, food insecurity increased from 15.8% to 21% during that period. Four million American children experience prolonged periodic food insufficiency and hunger each year, which amounts to 8% of children under the age of 12. What's really interesting about that is to go back to these two pamphlets that I really focused on is that even at that time, what they were talking about is the fact that there was a food insecurity with these children. That was 1916, 1920. A hundred years ago, we were having this conversation and we're still having this conversation. I don't think neither you nor I have a solution to it. Clearly, the fact that we've been talking about it for a hundred years means that as a country, we haven't resolved it either. I'm hoping that this gives some perspective as to why we do have things like the National School Lunch Program, why it is important for us to take care of each other, because the kids that are being fed are our future. (laughs) And because I don't have my own children, it's actually given me some thought to what do I need to do as a responsible American citizen to help the future of our country? What moral obligation do we have as citizens to take care of each other? is the the question that I'm grappling with. It's a good question. It's a hard question. It's a very hard question because there's several paths to a solution. There's several solutions. Obviously, this one has been in effect for, on one hand, not that long. 1946, relatively speaking, is not that long ago. One presumes that before this, it was a matter of communities taking care of these issues. And back to the 1916 and 1920 pamphlets, That's really what these two women were talking about. If the kids didn't have the funds to pay for a school lunch, they could bring eggs. They could bring dairy. So it was very community-based. I think that's a lot of us have aspired and continue to aspire to that kind of community Mm -hmm. involvement. But sometimes these questions are matters of policy, and that goes far beyond what we can contribute as individuals. So just something to be aware of. I do wonder about the kids in my community and are they getting their needs met? They must because we have a program in place, but gosh, what would we do if we didn't? I think we still need to ask that question. I think you're right. And especially now in the pandemic where we have schools that aren't functioning and we have a lot of children who aren't able to get at least one meal that has some nutritional value. If they're not going to school, where are we guaranteeing that they're getting that? On a slightly more upbeat note, I did do some polling of folks because I truly want to hear from people about their experiences. And so I did do a poll about folks' favorite and least favorite school foods. And I had a huge surprise pop up. There were quite a few people who have very fond memories of eating chili and cinnamon rolls. Now, this is not a dish that's familiar to me. I got really curious. What is this combination? Because actually on the face of it, it sounds pretty amazing. If you think of a spicy chili con carne paired with a cinnamon roll, honestly, I have to say that I'm a little compelled and I am going to try this. I did look into it and apparently it's been a school lunch program favorite across the Midwest and the Great Plains since the mid 1900s. 
Post-World War II, chili con carne recipe was introduced into smaller school lunch programs by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Bureau of Human Nutrition and Home Economics into the national school lunch system. Apparently, the Greeley Public Schools in Greeley, Colorado, regularly had a chili and cinnamon roll combos on their published school lunch menus as of like 1954. And these are the published school menus. So somebody did a survey of school menus published in newspapers. This was the first reference to chili cinnamon rolls. But by the 60s, published menus from Iowa, Nebraska, Indiana, Idaho, and Texas also had that specific combo on their menus. A broader survey, so this one has no academic value, it's just like an anecdotal thing. People with childhoods in Arkansas, Colorado, Idaho, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Montana, particularly rural Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, rural Washington, and Wyoming say that the combo is on their school lunch menus, all homemade. So they have very clear, specific memories of homemade chili and homemade cinnamon rolls served together. South Dakota has an additional claim to fame in originality of chili and caramel rolls. It was also the number one favorite school lunch menu item that would actually draw parents to the school to eat with their kids. Wow, I didn't know that you could go to school with your kids and eat. I remember kindergarten in North Carolina. My mom came to have lunch with me one day. It was always a big deal, actually, having a parent come. The person whose parent was coming got to be the first one in line. Ultimately, this combo fell off of school menus due to the high sugar and high fat content of cinnamon rolls. There is a restaurant chain in Nebraska called Runza that serves still regularly a chili and cinnamon roll combo. There's a ton of discrepancy about how this dish is supposed to be eaten. It ranges from serving it on top of a cinnamon roll to dipping a cinnamon roll in the chili to just having them side by side. And then second to that was everybody loved the square pizzas that they used to get from the school cafeteria, specifically square pizzas. One of the worst lunches was cream potatoes with pieces of hot dog in it. I have to vote for that as the worst. Right next to tuna noodle casserole. Someone has a very fond memory of fish stick day, which I can actually understand. I got a lot of really fabulous feedback from folks who were immigrant or refugee. So they have a particular feelings of being grossed out by corn dogs. So many people love that chili cinnamon roll combo. They loved the turkey gravy on top of mashed potatoes. That was more than gravy. It was just like you got like a mini Thanksgiving meal. But they also hated the tuna noodle casserole. A lot of folks had fond memories, too, about fresh baked cookies being available. There's so much wrapped up in school lunch. You were in school for 12 years most of the time. Your table was important. Who you sat with was important. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you had subsidized school lunch. When I was going to school, you knew who had subsidized school Mm -hmm. lunches. School is this odd cauldron of all kinds of social mores. And I asked my dad, too, actually, whether his service in the kitchen was a shameful thing or just a matter-of-fact thing. I was actually really curious about that. Because in the U.S., service, particularly if you're as a form of subsidy, mm-hmm. you, you do you do something in order to... You're the scholarship right. kid. He seemed to think it had a, a little bit more of a British sensibility to it, where service was just what you did, and that the interaction between somebody in service and somebody not in service was just really mo- mostly a business interaction. He didn't recall there being a whole lot of like, I'm embarrassed to be seen receiving a subsidy mm-hmm. for it. What's something that you learned today? 
I guess the one thing that was interesting and saddening at the same time is that we have had this conversation about food insecurity for over a hundred years and we still haven't figured out how to solve it. We can send people to the moon, but we can't solve food insecurity. Yeah, we have a really hard time feeding yeah. our children. It was really useful to me to learn about those early efforts, especially in rural areas, for communities to come together before the federal school lunch program, that it was an expectation that they joined together, that there was a, a sort of a sense of a community pantry with students bringing ingredients to yeah. school. And I love that idea of, hey, we have a lot of chickens, and so we have a lot of eggs. And so maybe one family was prolific in bringing in eggs and another maybe more of a dairy farm family. And so that sort of sense that each kind of brought in their own specialty. And I don't know if that's the case, but my imagination's enjoying that thought. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. <laughs>